Мы шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, Well, hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this week I'm just joined by Rusana Novikova. Margaret is away this week, and this is after a couple of weeks since Rusana's been gone, and now she's back, and at some point we'll get us all together. Uh, As you know, the SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who generously give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25, even $1. Hell, I'll, we'll take 50 cents if you have it. Um, if you'd like to become a supporter of the SRB podcast, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit the Patreon button and join the table of ranks. So, Rusana, you have been gone for a couple of weeks. How, how are things going? Uh, things are going pretty well. It's finally summertime in Vladivostok, so I've been enjoying the sun and um, swimming and tanning quite a bit, although this weekend is pretty rainy. But otherwise, yeah, it's it's kind of strange to experience the seasonal change in Vladivostok. It really struck me that it's... Uh, beach town (laughs) it became a lot livelier uh and a lot more crowded since the beginning of the summer a lot of bars popped up on the shoreline Uh, a lot of tourists coming from all parts of eastern russia to get some sun you know and it's such a huge change from winter time when everything was just like frozen and everyone was hiding inside well, I hope you can enjoy enjoy for the last couple of months of uh, of summer, since I'm sure the winters come early. Um, so we have this really fascinating interview with Sarah Riccardi Schwartz this week, and this is you know she this is a book about Russian Orthodox converts in West Virginia, United States, and this is one of these kinds of topics where, right when I heard about it, I was like, this is absolutely fascinating. People who, Americans who convert to Russian Orthodoxy, who have no Russian background whatsoever, is incredibly interesting. So um, I'm sure we have a lot to discuss. So why don't we just jump right to it? And why don't you introduce uh, Sarah? Sarah Riccardi Schwartz is an assistant professor of religion and anthropology at Northeastern University, where she's also an affiliate faculty member in the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies program. An anthropologist and documentary filmmaker, she specializes in Orthodox Christianity, politics, gender, and sexuality, and race in the United States. Her new book is Between Heaven and Russia, Religious Conversion and Political Apostasy in the Appalachia, published by Fordham University Press. Here's Sarah Riccardi Schwartz. Okay, so you have this, it's fascinating book, um, and, you know, especially for me personally, because I'm interested in these US-Russia relations, or at least have become really interested in the last couple of years. And this is a really unique way of looking at it in terms of um, religious Russian Orthodox converts in Appalachia. So your book is called Between Heaven and Russia, Religious Conversion and Political Apostasy in Appalachia. And I'm just curious, like, how did you get into this 
topic to study Russian Orthodox converts in such an unlikely region? So I think I have to sort of push back a little in, in the history of my academic pursuits. I've always been interested, and this is like from an undergrad on, in how political authority and religious practice and media are partners in the transformation of American communities, of American social ecology. So while you're thinking about sort of these transatlantic connections, right, Russian America, I'm really interested in how American social ecologies are changing because I, I, I'm a scholar of American religion. And so my work is always hinged on this idea of transformation. Um, and that, that curiosity really first led me to consider uh, how Eastern Orthodoxy and um, icons, so religious imagery used by Eastern Orthodox practitioners in the U.S., um, transforms. And I wanted to look at that shift in terms of information and ideas, and especially in convert communities, because Eastern Orthodoxy is often thought of as this diasporic religion of immigrants to the U.S., um, but that's really rapidly changing. And so I undertook really early stages of this work in Missouri with a group of both cradle and um, uh, cradle being people who were baptized as infants into the Orthodox Church um, and converts, people who converted in as adults um, and some children. Uh, I, so I started working with them and thinking about issues of social politics, of digital technologies, of rituals of world building. And I started in the Missouri Ozarks because I was, I was doing my MA there in religion at the time. But it also seemed to me to be this sort of um, counterintuitive location for the rise of this sort of trans transatlantic thinking. And then when I had the greater time um, and space to really unfold these ideas into a book, I knew I wanted to work in Appalachia um, with an Orthodox convert community because they seemed to be at the fulcrum of those issues I was thinking about, social politics, digital technologies, ritual of world building. So I began visiting and working with a, a particular Russian Orthodox community in Appalachia starting in the summer of 2015. And what what is it? I mean, I'm, I uh, have this fascination with conversion and in terms of its, you know, it being a threshold, it being something that people change their identity, change their practices, their ethics. And can you talk about the, the, the experience of conversion just generally as a as a social phenomenon as a as a point of identity or changing one's identity yeah i mean i think that conversion is always thought about in terms of when we think about conversion in america we often think about forced conversions of indigenous populations right in early in the history of what becomes the united states um, we seem to, in, in the United States, have less interest in uh, conversion, in, intra-religious conversion. So people who decide to switch religious affiliations uh, for one reason or another. I mean, you know, in anthropology, we would say it's definitely political, um, but there's also sort of a psychological and spiritual dimension to it. There's a reason why people are converting um, to a faith. They find something in it. Now, you know, in terms of the people I'm working with, in Appalachia, they really found in Russian Orthodoxy um, a historical form of Christianity that they believed was outside of Western secularism. So they wanted something that was mystical. They wanted something that they believed withstood the test of time. And they really saw that in Russian Orthodoxy. They thought, look, this is a church that had to flee from Russia, you know, right as, this, as the Soviet Union is starting. 
It was able to withstand persecution. And, you know, now it's reconnected with the church in Russia after 2007. It's experiencing a revival in in post-Soviet Russia. It's kept the faith here in the United States. This is really the the true faith. And so they, they believed that in terms of spirituality, but they also saw Russian Orthodoxy sort of unique political ties, both in terms of, um, in historical terms, in terms of a czar, but also in the contemporary moment with Putin um, as being sort of a good thing for aiding the return of conservative values to society. I think the most telling thing for me um, in terms of why people convert is when the abbot of the monastery, um, because I worked in a monastery and a parish in this community, he told me very plainly that our country, and he meant America, now represents anti-Christianity and Russia represents Christianity. Well, so you were in, you were, you're studying Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia. I was wondering if there's like a difference between what we're seeing Russian Orthodoxy in Russia and where you were in Appalachia in West Virginia. So I think to understand that we have to, we have to figure out what the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia is, right? It's, and it goes by the acronym ROCOR, um, because saying the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia over and over is a mouthful. <laughs> Let's be real about it. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's an Orthodox religious community that formally formed in the 1920s. So after the 1917 revolution, you then have the assassination of um, Tsar Nicholas, who'd already abdicated in his family in, in 1918. Um, and you have the Russian Orthodox Church leadership looking at, at, at the um, burgeoning Soviet Union and saying, look, this state is going to be hostile to our religious mission. So they made a contingency plan. And as a way to prevent the total collapse of the church in Russia, people started leaving. They started fleeing. Um, And Patriarch Tikhon of Moscow then in 1920 orders an emergency resolution. He says, if you find yourself outside of, of Russia and you don't have a canonical bishop, you can reorganize the church. That's important because that resolution that he, he provides was vital for religious, um, religious clerics and lay folks who were czar-supporting Russians who were fleeing to, the, to Europe and the United States. And Rokor emerges out of that. Um, it takes about a decade or so of really complicated church politics. Um, but it eventually finds itself in the late 1920s. It comes together as a formal organization And it was founded in part on the belief that the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia during the Soviet Union was an error and that it was filled with Soviet ideology. And, you know, there's like there's a ton of internal struggles between this small group of ROCOR, which is, you know, it's in Europe, it's in the United States, it eventually is in other parts of the world. And what would eventually become called the Moscow Patriarchate to to talk about here, but I think really what's crucial to understand is that once Rokor becomes its own uh, entity, as it were, it's canonically separated from the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia until it signs documents of reconciliation with the Moscow Patriarchate in 2007. And that's roughly 80 years in which Rokor is focused on preserving and crystallizing these pre-revolutionary religious practices and ideas and theologies um, in hopes of returning to Russia 
to remissionize the motherland once the Soviet Union ends. Did, can you put it in some uh, comparison in terms of how large Rokor is and how many followers compared to other, you know, Orthodox faiths in the United States? Okay, so, you know, Orthodoxy makes up less than like 1% of the American population, right? Within that, it's going to be, you know, about uh, maybe maybe 15% less than that it's it's the smallest it's one of the smallest of the of the uh canonical orthodox communities in the united states you have the greek archdiocese you have the antiochian archdiocese you have the orthodox church in america those are some of the larger ones right this is small and in many respects because it was so insular and non-canonical so people you know first of all there was not a lot of russian migration to the united states you know, during the Soviet Union of people who were religious, right? Um, and there weren't a lot of converts to to the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia in the 19th, 19th, 20th century, right? Because in part, they're speaking Russian. It's a it's an ethnic religious group. Why would you convert to it if you're an American citizen? Especially given the tensions between Russia and the United States during the Cold War. I mean, and even and even after that. So um, it's small. It's very small. And the group, you know, the group of converts, though, that have been converting over the years into this into this faith has been growing. So what we see is a sort of shifting, um, a shifting sort of demographic. So right now we uh, the community I worked in was, you know, roughly 90 percent converts. All of the, the clergy were converts. Um, the parish priest, a convert. It's that's telling. I mean, that's a lot of the smaller parishes that um, are growing up around the American South and Midwest. And, you know, I'm not a sociologist, but there is an, a, a sociologist, Alexei Krindach, who works on, you know, stats for Orthodox Christianity in the United States. And he noted that, yes, there is a decline in attendance. There's a decline among members in the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia. At the same time, there's a 15 percent increase in parishes being built. From 2010 to 2020, uh, 20, yeah, 2020. And so, what does that mean? Well, that means that there's small parishes um, starting to pop up. And if you look at where they're popping up, if you cross-reference Alexei's stats with where these parishes are popping up across the United States, it's in the American South, in Appalachia, in the Midwest, and that's you know those are convert communities. So back to that 80 years of separation. Uh, what is the what are the kind of functional differences that we're seeing as a result of that? You know, that's a good question. I mean, in terms of theology, right, they have the, the same sort of theology as, as the rest of canonical Eastern Orthodox communities. Uh, what we see is mostly uh, the outside trappings of Orthodoxy and the political ideologies being different. So, um, you know, it depends on the person. And certainly within this group, um, they paid attention to certain aspects of Russian Orthodoxy, um, at, like fasting. Uh, there's a big emphasis on obeying your spiritual father, learning to make Russian food, um, following the Russian typicon. At the same time, there are aspects of Russian Orthodoxy and Russian culture they're not paying attention to, which is learning how to speak and read and write in Russian, which I found really fascinating and slightly disconcerting. Um, you also have, um, the sort of reimagining 
of the church. So again, you know, here's here's a church that was predominantly made up of immigrants. And here come white, mostly white Americans into the church. And they're really quite taken with all of the sort of materiality of orthodoxy. Let's let's admit it. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. There's icons. There's it's filled with colors and smells and sounds and bells. Right. But you have sort of in some instances what I as an anthropologist could easily label cultural appropriation, um, but also a cultural reimagining. So you have, you know, you'll see men wearing unkempt beards and long hair and sort of the style of, of Russian Orthodox monastics. Um, you'll have women covering their heads with scarves and wearing long skirts and long sleeve tops, um, very loose fitting in order to, um, you know, preserve their modesty. And it's a, it's a sartorial focus that I think of as like peasant chic, right? They're really, they're really sort of into that. Um, and, you know, they're also really interested in, in what the Orthodox Church can teach them in terms of uh, the relationship between church and state. So, you know, in pre-revolutionary Russia, there's a, there's a czar, right? And they're really fascinated by that. They see the idea of a king um, as being God's anointed on earth. And they're quite taken with the idea of a return to monarchism now. Um, and so you combine that with sort of traditionalist theories about the body, about gender, about sexuality, and this sort of orthodox focus on rigorism, on like long services, strict fasting, confessing weekly. And you get a really, um, a really complex community that is part of Russian orthodoxy, but also has reimagined it to the point that it's something, you know, that someone perhaps in, in the early years of coming to the United States as a Russian immigrant may not recognize. Well, you've given, uh, there's so much to unpack here, but, and, but the first thing I, I want to address is that, you know, you're, you're already studying or writing about a marginal community in the United States and you're, you're writing about it in a, in a region that has a very long history of functioning as a domestic other in the United States, right? It, this is a very long trope um, of, you know, that, you know, people of Appalachia are backward, et cetera, conservative, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and this, of course, this trope has really returned to force since Trump's election in 2016. And, you know, we've seen all of these like journalists parachuting into the, into the region and then writing these stories to try to find the secret to Trump in that. And, and I'm just curious, like, how did you deal with this issue of othering, of not othering and not exoticizing Appalachia. So I think two things come to mind for me um, in terms of conducting research. Or, you know, the the subjectivities of the researcher always shape the research, right? And I come from the Missouri Ozarks, and that's a region that shares a very uh, similar type of distinct image with Appalachia in the American public consciousness. And so that personal understanding of how rural impoverished communities are seen, how they're written about, um, how they're critiqued. You know, that's I always keep that with me as sort of my scholarly disposition on what to avoid, right? It also means that I'm really focused on on thinking with Appalachian writers, Appalachian studies um, scholars who have brought to the fore how diverse Appalachia is in terms of, you know, race, religion, um, sexual identification, all of that. And uh, you'll see that throughout the book. I really, I, I am indebted to them and the long history of Appalachian studies. I think the other thing is I tend to think about Appalachia as, as 
completely diverse um, ecologically. In terms of geography, yes. I mean, think about the sort of, if you think about the constructed bounded regions of what we see as Appalachia, it's huge. <laughs> I mean, it spreads from like parts of New York State down to the, the upper parts of Alabama, right? It's, it's massive. And, you know, West Virginia is interesting. That's where I did my work because it's the only state that's wholly inside of that geographical construct. But I so you see this you see this diversity in terms of the geography, but you also see it in terms of, you know, social, racial, religious. And I really wasn't interested in reviving that hillbilly stereotype that was not only, you know, started with Johnson's War on Poverty or even before that, but. You know, also this idea that everyone's conservative. I mean, I, you know, the people I work with were far right, right wing, but they definitely weren't conservative. I mean, to think that the prayers of deceased Tsar Nicholas are affecting American religion and politics, that's not conservative. <laughs> in, the, in the classical sense, right, that we would understand like Republicanism, the GOP, right? Um, that's very far removed from conservatism. Um, you know, so I wasn't interested in reviving that sort of hillbilly conservative stereotype. And my interlocutors were really frustrated with it, actually. Um, they were keenly aware of stereotypes held by outsiders, you know, people calling them backwards. And they actually saw their conversions as, as breaking through these stereotypes. Um, one, one guy told me, you know, I'm, we're not good old boys. We're not ignorant hillbillies. And they actually were not. Um, they're very well educated, philosophically inclined. Um, they were extremely articulate about their place in the history of American politics and religion, and they were quite exacting as they expressed repeatedly to me why they turned to Russia, why they turned eastward to intellectual ties abroad. So I think whether we disagree or not with their religious and political project, in their own way, they were pushing back against that discourse that swirls in our media worlds about Appalachia and their emphasis on selecting their own religion. Um, selecting their own political identity is not really an Appalachian story. It, it's not a Russian story either, because we tend to we tend to otherize Russia too. Yeah, that's that's um, what's interesting about this. It's a double othering. <laughs> right, right. It's, you know, I see it really as an American story, um, and that's what I do my best to show in the book. So they're saying they're not. We're not these uh, good old boys. We're not backwards, and they're telling you their narratives. Why did they convert to Russian Orthodoxy? What what were the stories, what was their background? Like, why do people in Appalachia convert to Russian Orthodoxy? I mean, I think on, on the whole, it's different for each person, right? We can't say that there's a standard narrative for why people might convert to Orthodoxy in the United States. I think we should make that clear from the outset. But I also think that um, they, again, found that Russian Orthodoxy was something historical, mystical. Eastern was a big thing, which I think ties into that whole um, branch in um, American religious history of people looking eastward, sort of exoticizing, right, um, the East. They were really interested um, in something that could fulfill their needs spiritually, but that wasn't part of the Western world because the Western world in their eyes had failed. Um, and it failed in part because it was built on revolution. You know, they decried the French revolution. They decried the American revolution, anything that sort of pushed back politically against the idea of a, of a monarch, a figurehead, um, for the sake of, of the voice of the people to them was really an affront to the political system that they believe God had created. 
Um, and that's why they really think that democracy is of the devil. Um, and people, you know, told me that uh, very pointedly, that democracy is the work of Satan. It's the work of secularism. So I think that's one of the reasons why they they converted. Um, you know, it's it's what's interesting to me is that these converts to Russian Orthodoxy are very distinct in many ways from other converts around the United States who might convert to the OCA or to the Antiochian Archdiocese, um, who don't have these sort of predispositions towards Russian um, Russian Orthodoxy or Russian culture um, or Russian political ideologies. These people who converted, did they tend to convert from secularism to orthodoxy or did they convert from a previous, like probably mostly Protestantism to orthodoxy? Yeah. I mean, most would, would identify as, as some form of evangelical Protestantism. So whatever that means. So there were people who were Calvinist, but also evangelical. There were people who were Assemblies of God, um, some traditionalist Catholics, but mostly, you know either non-dom or, or just straight up evangelical um, would be their affiliation. What I found really interesting, and I think it's important to note that I, I interviewed a lot more men than I did women because I was at a, a men's monastery in part, um, is that most men went on this sort of quest. They went through Buddhism and Islam and Hinduism, all these so-called Eastern faiths, right? Looking for something before they finally settled on Russian Orthodoxy. Um, because they saw that it, for them at least, combined Eastern mysticism with Christianity. So they had their savior figure, but they also have sort of the what they believed were the trappings of the mystical East. Hmm. Did they ever? Did they ever talk about what they found dissatis what dis dissatisfied them with the evangelical denominations they were involved with, and and also why not Catholicism? Yeah. Well, I mean, Catholicism is easy. It, they have a pope, right? And so <laughs> you have you certainly have figureheads, right? You have hierarchical figureheads. But the the Orthodox Church is sort of has a flattened network in many respects. You don't have one person that everyone's answering to. Um, right? So you may have the Moscow Patriarchate as sort of the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, right? But he is first he he is among the equals in his um his other brother patriarchates. So, you know, there's, it's commonly classic to call the um, the ecumenical patriarch, whoever he t is at the at that moment, the first among equals. So um, they see themselves as equals on equal footing, and they all lead these sort of um, you know, for lack of a better word, ethnically defined religious communities. Um, so you have the ecumenical patriarch who's over Greece and other communities. You have the Russian patriarch over Russia and, and, and sort of the diasporic Russian Orthodox church, et cetera. But it, they don't have a Pope, right? They don't have one person who says this is authoritative and you have to follow my orders and that, and that that's it. <laughs> um, so in terms of why they, they found evangelicalism sort of not what they wanted uh, for the long haul, they would always go back to the fact that it wasn't historical. Um, they were they were really looking deep into the past for something that they found to be um, totally authentic, totally apostolic, um, that could be traced back to Christ, that was unbroken. And you know, evangelicalism doesn't have that. You have offshoots of offshoots because you know it's it's about that personal relationship with Christ. It's about 
um, community. It's about uh, finding your voice within Christianity. And that to them is not appealing, um, not only in terms of religion, but in terms of politics, right? Um, they don't they don't want populism. People will often call these groups populist. They don't want populism. They want a monarchy. And they they like monarchy because in orthodoxy, they see Christ as king and um, it parallels with their their political values. So if democracy is heretical and people who are converting are inspired by Putin, am I wrong in extrapolating that Putin is kind of seen as a czar by the Rokor creed? You know, I don't know if he would be seen as a czar. I think he, you know, one monk told me he's an echo of Tsar Martyr Nicholas, um, which for him meant that he was trying his best as the leader of Russia to keep uh, Russia as a Christian nation. And it's if we look at Putin, let's be honest, he markets himself very well, um, at least he did before February of this year. As a devout Orthodox Christian, he attends services, he goes to confession, he has a spiritual father, he seems to have a really good relationship with Pedro Creel. And so that combined with his emphasis on family values that he's pushing through legislation um, appealed to them. You know, the idea of Orthodoxy as central to this historic configuration of Holy Rus, which Putin talks about um, extensively all the time. Um, and his explicit use of the of the Moscow Patriarchate to sort of bless troops, um, bless a religious icon of the Virgin Mary that was sent before the armed forces going into Ukraine, right? All of this looks like Putin is utilizing religion as sort of a central component of his political pro- project. So why so why would American converts like him? I mean, he he's relatable to them because they see in him someone who. Um, is preserving Russian Orthodoxy, just like Rokor did in the United States in the early 20th century. And they see him as a defender of morality. Um, they, they really believe that progressive secularism is causing the decline of the Western world. Um, and Putin, they believe, is trying to preserve that. He's trying to defend Christian values in Russia and they find that appealing. I mean, they also find appealing if you, if you look at what's going on just like broadly in, the, in American conservatism. You know, Putin is appealing to American conservatives, you know, by and large. Orban, um, we, saw, we saw Tucker Carlson going to Hungary last summer. Um, these are all sort of authoritarian king figures. And I think that a lot of people on the American religious right think that these guys might secure a different political future for them. How have the people you spent time with and interviewed, those who've either read your writings or your book, how have they responded to your your research and conclusions? I think many are upset, uh, even the ones who I sat with repeatedly and you know recorded their interviews and talked with them about their ideas, um, who agreed to be part of the case study. And for me, I, you know, I've thought a lot about this over the years. I think it boils down to two issues. First is, I think it's really hard to see yourself in print. Um, you know, as someone who sees myself in print on a daily basis, it's really hard. Um, so even if someone knows they're being interviewed for a book and that they're going to be quoted word for word, I think that that's difficult. 
The other thing is that there's people generally from outside of this community who have heard me on NPR or they've read secondhand tweets about my book, but they haven't read the book. And this is the group who's been really reactive in their hatred for, the scho- for my scholarship and even for female researchers in general, um, which then, you know, sort of supports the claims I make towards the end of the book about these, these reactive orthodox. Um, they don't know what's in the book. And they'll claim that it's unethical, which, spoiler alert, it is not unethical. (laughs) Um, Or that, and and this is a direct quote from someone, that I'm a Jewish subversive, Um, that I'm trying to take down Russian Orthodoxy from the inside, right? Which seems like totally ludicrous. Um, And also just points to the anti-Semitism that's rising within (laughs) Russian Orthodoxy. So, you know, I think it points to the reactive strand Orthodoxy, but also the fact that a lot of people don't understand anthropological research methods. And a case in point was a recent review for the Hedgehog Review. And it was written by a priest, an Orthodox priest, and one who, I must say, must have read my book very loosely because he decries the fact that I don't have statistical data, which I do at the beginning in the introduction in depth, Um, but in in which he kept referring to me as a sociologist. And then at the end, he hints that my work is journalistic. And I think that's a fantastic example of the lack of understanding about the academic procedures that delineate these different social sciences from each other and also from journalism. Did you have an idea? Like, do you have a, a you know, I don't know, somewhere in the back of your head, a, a kind of desire, though, as an academic, you you shouldn't have these, but that people in those communities who read your work, do you have a hope that they will take something? And if so, what that something is, what will they take from your work about themselves? You know, I just hope that they realize that the goal of anthropology is not to be a hit piece. Um, you know, I, and I, I, you've read the book, I say this explicitly, I'm really interested in why they're creating this political project, why they're converting, especially now. I mean, what prompts people um, in the mid 2010s to convert, especially given the relationship between Trump and Putin, the 2016 presidential election, ideas about Russian interference, all of that. If you take all of that into consideration, why are you converting? And it must mean that something for you is missing in the United States, is missing in American religion. And that, to me, is part of that transformation of American religion and politics that I'm always interested in. So my hope would be that they would take that away instead of, you know, seeing it as as being a hit piece or as as someone trying to, you know, uh, destroy Rokor from within. You mentioned that, like, they're not speaking Russian with each other. They don't have, like, cultural, they're not, like, embracing Russia in this, like, uh, cultural way, I guess, like, acting Russian. <laughs> um, what... What does it mean to be Russian Orthodox in America if they're not, you know, being Russian in this ethnic way? Yeah, I, that's, that's a really complicated question, right? Because it would be nice to sit down and ask each person, what does it mean to be Russian Orthodox? I, I think that for them, it ultimately means that they are, they are part of Rokor. And Rokor is is right for them. Um, you know, I think one of the questions that one of the questions that an interlocutor said to me um, in in 2000 
when I interviewed him on Zoom because of the pandemic, he had left he had left the community in Appalachia. And he said, um, what makes a person orthodox? And he was he was asking himself as much as he was asking me, right? And I think for some Orthodox Christians, being Orthodox seems to be tied to a particular understanding of modernity, of East and West, of good and evil, as expressed in sort of social morals. I also think for some, that identity is founded in heritage, um, familial ties, homeland, especially for people who have some sort of Russian heritage already. Um, and for others, it's about the historical writings of, of the church fathers. It's about finding apostolic succession, spiritual lineage, an unbroken link to Christ. Um, you know, relig because religion is this social production, right? I think understanding one's own relationship to it is a production of sociality um, as much it is, as it is psychology or even ideology. So for the community in my book, being orthodox meant being in Rokor. I mean, that's why they would drive often hours past other orthodox churches, Greek and Antiochian, to get to that particular Rokor parish because they understood that being orthodox meant being in Rokor. Is there a, a racial dimension to their affinity to Russia? And the reason why I'm asking this is because you do see in some um, imaginations of the American right Russia represents like the, you know, the the front of white civilization. I would say that it's it's not a large contingent um, that see that. I certainly think that what has confounded me is the rise in anti-Semitism. It's it's quite shocking to see just blatantly happening, um, and that's that's. Not great because, you know, uh, first of all, anti-Semitism is bad, but it's also, you know, it's heretical in terms of the tr racism is heretical. It's considered a heresy. And, you know, I was I was doing some online research recently and I saw a priest who said, we need to welcome racists into the church because the church is a hospital and they can heal there from their racism. And I thought about that. I sat with that for like a day or two. And then I thought, but Orthodox Christianity teaches that racism is a heresy. And when you convert into the Orthodox Church, you renounce all heresies. So that should have been gone at the door. And it should have been dealt with in terms of theological pedagogy before you entered the church. You should have been taught by your priest that that is wrong and you leave that at the door. So if there are racists being welcomed into the church, that's not a good thing because it goes directly in opposition to the teachings of the church. Do you see a liberalism as one of the primary defining features of Rokor and specifically of the community that you were studying? You know, I don't think that they would call it illiberalism. I think they are enchanted with Putin's illiberalism for sure. But I think that they see, you know, one of the interesting things is that they don't even see themselves as political. They'll say, I don't like to talk about politics. And then they'll talk about politics <laughs> because they'll say orthodoxy is my worldview. Orthodoxy is everything. Orthodoxy first. Right. And but within that, then they start to talk about political things like I don't support trans rights. I don't support abortion rights. I think, you know, Putin could save the world. I think Russia is the last holdout for social morals. Those are all political statements. And when you use those political statements and say, 
orthodoxy is my worldview, you are making orthodoxy political. And, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think illiberalism will do it for them. I, I think they really do want a, a sort of renewed a relationship between church and state, preferably one that is monarchical in nature. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a lot of the, the, some of the thing, the themes you're talking about around these converts and the reasons why they converted, I mean, they, they sound really familiar um, in the sense of a search for authenticity, this, this sense of the being unmoored in a rapidly changing world, the need or desire for a return to some kind of community, uh, you know, skepticism to, you know, master narratives that you were born with or you, you live in in terms of country. And, and you see people gravitating in many parts of the world to marginalize ideologies or extreme identities, you know, around the world, you know, this lateral conversion from, because I'll give an example, I, as someone from Los Angeles, and this is why I've actually really struck by, there's not a lot of research on this lateral movement of converts, you know, a lot of Latinos in, in, in Los Angeles are converting from Catholicism to evangelicalism for a variety of reasons. Um, and so this is a huge phenomenon of this kind of this conversion. Does does all of this say something, or does the community that you studied in Appalachia, this these converts, does it say something about our particular moment? This this seems to widespread desire for something. I think it does. I mean, you know, the late 2010s and even now is this is a moment in the United States in which we're experiencing deep social polarization. Um, And I wouldn't just say polarization, but perhaps social fracturing. Um, So much so that we have competing realities of of what the world actually is. I mean, a perfect example of that is January 6th, right? Um, That's a completely different reality that is unmoored from actual reality (laughs) that is so far removed. Um, But there is this, you know, there is among certain populations, this feeling that the world is changing. How do we grapple with that? How do we grapple with secularism? How do we grapple with, um, you know, the fact that technology has has infiltrated every part of our lives? Um, and I certainly think this is a moment in which certain political parties and movements have capitalized on that f- those those feelings of fear. Um, and have allowed people to come aboard that generally wouldn't. I mean, I'm thinking of QAnon, for example. That's a perfect a, a perfect storm, right? Here's this idea that this is happening, Pizzagate, save the children, right? All of that. When people are feeling concerned, when they're when they're ingesting that 24 hour news cycle that says there are children missing, and immediately they they say, well, maybe this is right, and then that just becomes, well, maybe Trump you know, did win the election and maybe we should march on the Capitol. You know, it, 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 it's, it's changing so rapidly that, you know, as we listen to the, 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 the commission right now on January 6th, it doesn't even feel like that's radical anymore. Um, it just feels like this is, this is part of, of the, the, the social fracturing of the U S and, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to be, a postdoc in the Recovering Truth Project, which is about sort of post-truth politics in the United States. 
And one of the things we tried to wrestle with is how do you talk to someone who has a completely different reality from you? What does that look like? Is there a way forward? And, you know, we're, we're a bunch of academics sitting around talking about this. But our question is, how does this, you know, how can we as people in education help transform the social relationships people have in the civic sphere? What can we do to help that? And so I do feel like this is a moment in which there is there's such rapid change in terms of technology, in terms of sociality, in terms of politics, that certain people are feeling, you know, skepticism, fear, panic, and, and that's leading them into ideas that perhaps wouldn't normally be associated with the religious communities they're in, like Russian Orthodoxy. I, I really like the fact that you speak of it in terms of fragmentation and not polarization, because I think that the frag first, I think fragmentation is more accurate, um, but it also presents a, a large, bigger problems because, you know, in, in reading your book and listening to you discuss it, um, there's a there's a very deep, important psychological component. People are just not feeling themselves unfulfilled on a very deep personal psychological level. And these various communities and ideologies uh, look to, you know, fill that vacuum. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what's really fascinating to me is to watch the how this has developed online and offline. Um, you know, the community I worked in was very well-read and very well-educated. I think that the next generation of these sort of reactive Orthodox folks that are in Rokor and in other Orthodox communities, um, they're not so well-educated. And they're focused mo mostly on having conversations online. Uh, they're really steeped in meme, meme culture. They're young. Um, and they don't have the you know, practical experience or theological education to grapple with issues. And so they're becoming radicalized online very easily. When you're talking about Appalachia, who's been continuously used by the state, who has this rich history of being trapped inside of a system, uh, this particular connection to Rokor leaning into monarchism is interesting. I'm especially curious about how that, like, having this state that was like basically like run by mining companies and stuff like how that may or may not contribute to this sense of distrust this rejection and interestingly like how the answers they're finding to their problems are in now monarchism it seems you know from the outside counterintuitive um so i'm kind of i'm curious about that transition like how does that like where's the like make it make sense <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it makes sense because this community wasn't originally founded in Appalachia. So it was founded in the Midwest. Most of the people who live in the community are from outside of Appalachia. And so in many respects, you could call it the colonization of this small town. Um, yeah. And I write about that in the book because I think that that's really important to note that there has been a long history of not just, you know, extractive practices colonizing this region, but also of religious communities colonizing the region through these kind of goodwill ideas that they're coming in to, you know, save the poor whites from themselves, to, you know, feed people, to provide assistance and aid. Um, all of that is colonizing. Um, and in many respects, they're doing the same thing. And I don't think that they see it that way. But 
when you come into a town and you become, um, you know, 10% of the population and you have much more wealth than the rest of the population does, that transforms a region. Um, to give you an example, uh, housing prices soared after they came because they they bought up places, you know, for asking price or above. Um, and that priced out some of the the locals. Now, that's not to say that people in the area don't convert. There are people that do convert. Um, but by and large, they're from outside the region. They might be they might drive in from Ohio, um, from Kentucky, from eastern Kentucky. They also, for in, in terms of the monks, there were no monks who were Appalachians. They were all from outside of Appalachia. Um, so I think that really creates, again, that sort of weird colonization of of Appalachia again. It, it reperpetu it, it it perpetuates again that sort of colonizing force, even if they don't intend to. So to be blunt, why did they come here? Like why what attracted them to that area? Well, I, you know, there was a, a a professor and his wife who was Russian, and she really wanted a community there. Um, they've they've both since passed on. I actually got to interview both of them. They were wonderful people, lovely. And yeah, at first they wanted a pan orthodox community. They just wanted to to practice the the orthodox Christian faith in their area. Um, but over time, they reached out to Rocor because they they just couldn't find enough um, people who were willing to come. And there was a Rocor monastery in Missouri that needed land, and they had land. And so they said, "Hey, would you come look at uh, this land? See if you want you want it. We'll give it to you." And um, in the spring of of two thousand, the monks arrived. They set up uh, tents in in a, a valley that was offered to them and they, they haven't left. So over time it's become, you know, it's become, uh, a spiritual hub for, um, for pilgrims from all over the United States and Russia to come to this monastery. You know, at the time that I was there, it was the largest English speaking Russian Orthodox monastery in the United States. Given the the way this community came together, people from the outside, also people who are converts, and, you know, in the history of religious conversion, converts tend to be more radical than your average practitioner. Um, and then, you know, you saying a bit ago about how the next generation, it seems, of these Orthodox people aren't of the same kind of, they don't have the same relationship, right? They're gravitating online into, you know, internet stuff. Are there anxieties within this community about its ability to maintain and reproduce itself? You know, I think that's a good question. There's, I'm sure there's always anxieties because it's a minority faith. I, I think that in many respects, Rocor doesn't see a problem with these more reactive, um, often white males uh, converting in, young white males, uh, because they want to grow. And uh, they see that as, as a way to grow. Um, but I can tell you from the Russian women who email me on a weekly basis that a lot of um, cradle-born um, Slavic communities are are kind of worried, and they they're grappling with that. And it's especially um, pointed now, given uh, Putin's war of terror in Ukraine. They're worried because they see Rokor as a bastardization of their faith. 
I think they're worried because one, they already fear that they're probably under surveillance um, because they're Russian Orthodox in the United States. And I think that two, they worry because here's a faith that, uh, let, let me give you a story. For example, a woman I, I worked with in the community, she was born in Russia, Russian Orthodox. She married a man who converted um, to the church. And she said, I just don't get why people sort of convert. Like it's in our blood. It's in our bones. We're Orthodox, but why would someone convert to it? And so I think there's this anxiety about what, why do they find it appealing? I'm certain that there's others who think, oh, that's great. You know, sure. You found your own form of spirituality. Good for you. But when you have converts becoming the priests, um, becoming the heads of monasteries, that's changing a whole, um, you know, ethnic religious group. And that's bound to bring a, about some um, anxiety. We we haven't delved too too much into the masculinity aspect of this. I mean, you said <laughs> you said that you know most of these the people, of course, you you interviewed most of them were men for a variety of reasons, but a lot of the converts are indeed men. Um, you know, the adoration for Putin, there's certainly a masculine. This this adoration for a monarch figure uh, is certainly there's a big masculinity component is there as well. I, I, what is your you talk about this issue of the masculinity of these converts and and what is what does it say to you about their own kind of gender identity? You know, I think it's it's part of their focus on traditionalism. Um, you know, traditionalism in the sense of like. Uh, the the fil- the philosophical ideas right that we see sort of promoted by Dugan and Bannon and all of those um, they really believe that there's sort of a fundamental structure to um, to reality in which there are men and women there are gender roles um, and they find that in orthodoxy you know or- orthodox clergy are males there are no female priests and um, women have it, within these co- convert communities typically have a more uh, sedate role. Um, they often stay at home with kids. They homeschool their children. Um, there's the idea that you know the man is going to be the provider for the community or for the for the domestic um, community. Um, and orthodoxy is appealing to them because it's a it's a tough faith. I mean, a lot of guys have come to me and said, "Look, it's it's strident. Strident is a word they like to use. It's a strident faith. You know, it's it's hard on me. I mean." These are these are guys who are going through like four hours of standing in services for a typical service. <laughs> you know, that's a lot of standing. Um, <laughs> I've been to concerts. It's a lot of standing. <laughs> um, you know, there's there. And, and besides that, there's there's prostrating, you know, there's bowing, there's uh, strict fasting. Um, there's you know submission to a, a male spiritual father. It's almost militarized in a sense. Yeah. And the asceticism yes, as well. Yes, absolutely. And so you combine all that together and you get you get a environment in which um, masculinity is really uh, praised in many respects. Do you see a big difference between the woman's role in Rokor versus in Orthodoxy in Russia? You know, I'm not a scholar of, of Orthodoxy in Russia per se, but I would say that... Um, <laughs> The Soviet Union brought about such changes in terms of egalitarian relationships between men and women that it has it has a trickle down effect on post-Soviet Russian Orthodoxy. Um, 
sadly, I don't think we're going to be able to research that as much as, um, you know, <laughs> we had hoped, <laughs> but, um, it, it is fair to say that the communities of converts here in the United States are different because you have people converting in from former evangelical backgrounds as well. And so they're bringing that predisposed evangelical baggage um, with them. And evangelicalism, as you know, we know from a lot of great scholars of, of evangelicalism in the United States, has its own sort of weird gender issues going on, um, you know, with the purity movement and all of that. And that's starting to make its way into Rocor, which it normally hasn't. I mean, even the language of family values that Putin hawks, right? That's not traditionally Russian Orthodox. That's an American import from the culture wars. And so, um, yeah, I think that there, there, in the United States, there is a big uh, focus in a lot of convert communities on traditional uh, family values and traditional roles for men and women. I would love to see, you know, I have a lot of friends who are anthropologists who work on Russian Orthodoxy. I would love to see somebody research that in Russia proper, because I think that it would be fascinating to compare the two. Um, and finally, you know, you're a Christian Orthodox with the Orthodox Church of America. How, has your experience researching, writing these, this book, living amongst this community, has it caused you to reflect on your own kind of spirituality and practice of Orthodoxy in America today? Yeah, I, I mean, I like to keep my own spirituality and my research sort of bracketed, but you know, they they overlap. And as someone who converted to the OCA in in 2011, I am actually struck by how orthodoxy has transformed with the rise of digital media technology. I mean, before I converted in 2011, I spent six years reading the Church Fathers. I studied Hebrew, I studied Greek, I studied German and Russian. That was all before I converted, and. You know, I made use of the internet, but not in the way that most seekers do today. And so I'm really fascinated with how technology has transformed both theological pedagogy and church authority, you know, where we see these young men that I talked about with thousands of social media followers. They have no formal theological training. They're making theological opinions with an authority that they would not be able to possess historically within the Orthodox Church. And I finally, I'll say that... You know, I think that the 2007 reconciliation between the Moscow Patriarch and Rokor has transformed orthodoxy in the United States. And we're just starting to see the real effects of that reunification, especially with Putin's war in Ukraine. In, in what ways? I, well, because I think that we have this war, we have this rise of nationalistically minded orthodox converts in the U.S., and I wouldn't be surprised if there's another canonical break on the horizon. Um, Rokor really sees itself as holding the true faith. And within Orthodox communities, there's this tension, um, true fighting. I mean, I had, I had a priest just this morning on Facebook say, you're part of the Fordham liberal Orthodox agenda, and we don't need you in the church. And it's like, wow, you were a priest saying this, a convert priest, but you're a priest saying this. So there's this real tension um, and a real, um, among many conservative convert communities in orthodoxy, a real hatred of what they perceive of as liberal um, orthodox converts or liberal or cradle orthodox. Um, you know, I've seen, I've seen firsthand converts say, well, you know, the cradles are just a church for um, ethnic reasons and, you know, they don't really understand their faith. That's sh that's shocking that they feel comfortable saying that. 
Um, so I do think that there's transformations going on. And I think that it's not just on an interpersonal level, but I think it's on a geopolitical global level as well. I mean, you see the Moscow Patriarchate going into Africa, trying to take over, um, you know, Greek parishes, telling African priests that, you know, if they don't sign these documents with them, that they're not really Orthodox. That's, that's astounding to me. And I think that these, these, these power plays by um, Orthodox hierarchs are going to have reverberating effects on the practice of spirituality by lay people in the United States and globally. That was Sarah Ricardi Schwartz. Sarah Ricardi Schwartz is an assistant professor of religion and anthropology at Northeastern University, where she is also an affiliate faculty member in the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies program. An anthropologist and documentary filmmaker, she specializes in Orthodox Christianity, politics, gender and sexuality, and race in the United States. Her new book is Between Heaven and Russia, Religious Conversion and Political Apostasy in Appalachia, published by Fordham University Press. Well, thank you, Rosanna. I don't know about you, but this, like I, I said in introduction, this is just a fascinating topic. Um, I, I'm really interested to hear what you think of this, people who are converting you know, to Russian Orthodoxy in America. Oh, yeah, I absolutely love the interview as well. Um, unfortunately, I had to miss it <laughs> because of my fieldwork. So I um, listened to the, to the recording a couple of days ago. And um, what I found particularly fascinating was the discussion around democracy and the role the religion plays in building the political life of a particular community. And so it was so interesting to hear how these converts imagine Russia and the Putin regime and the kind of a political and moral conservatism that Russia has taken on, you know, as its path, you know, as a way out of the impasse of progressive secularism that has plagued America in the past, I don't know, 50, 30 years, uh, depending on how you count. Um, I guess what fascinated me was that a lot of Russians themselves see... Russia as this kind of place or as this kind of agent that provides an alternative future or some kind of third way, you know, I mean, Sean, and I'm sure like our audiences are well aware of it because we talk about it quite a bit, but it's interesting how both within Russia and outside Russia, there is this image of, you know, um, of a country that kind of upholds conservative, but nonetheless traditional or maybe even um, Easternly, I want to say like true, like like an, an authentic or maybe like a, a a true way out of this historical impasse, out of this quagmire that we're in. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I yeah, I do. It, and this is what I mean, I'm fascinated. This is what struck me too. this this role of Russia in the American imagination and how it grafts politically, because, you know, on the more kind of liberal progressive side, 
Russia is seen as this like, especially since 2016, this great, you know, you know, domestic uh, evil, right, trying to sow discord and chaos in American society, etc. Um, and now, of course, internationally, it's viewed that way. But on the right, it, it has this really strange image that I find so like <laughs> incompatible with real Russia <laughs> because despite the rhetoric in Russia of traditional values and all of this stuff, there's, I don't really think they have a really strong hold on society in any deep way. Um, and so it's interesting to me how, and amongst people on the American, on more on the right in America, see Russia as this like last bastion of Christian traditional civilization. Um, and, and it really, and especially for a community like in West Virginia, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to exoticize that region because there's a long history of that, but it's still, you know, somewhat strange, I think, for Americans to convert to this religion that is so, you know, tied to Russian culture, ethnic identity, etc. Right. But I mean, if you think about it, maybe it's not so strange. Like, there are so many people who convert into uh, Buddhism or Hinduism um or Sintaism, well, maybe not so much, not so many. Um, I think perhaps Sarah provided a partial answer to this. Um, she, if I remember correctly, she was talking about this fascination with Eastern traditions and mysticism. And I can see how Buddhism, for example, fulfills that role for a lot of Russians who like, you know, travel to... India on this spiritual journey, you know, da da da. And how perhaps Russian Orthodoxy could also fulfill that role uh, for someone who is interested in mysticism but also wants to stay within Christianity, within something that is a bit more familiar. Now this is this is the thing, the larger kind of message or the larger context of all of this, you know, at, at one point in the interview, I said to her, look, you know, a lot of the reasons why people are converting are really familiar to us. And we can apply them to all sorts of aspects of, of life where people feel that they want something that's larger, that's more tied to a community or tied to a tradition or more authentic, um, you know, and as a way to kind of cope or situates oneself in our rapidly changing times. And the other thing too is the role of the internet too in this as well, which is I think is both a contributor, but also a solution for many people. Yeah, I really appreciated your question about, you know, if there is something about our historical moment, like because we see those processes around the world, um, not only in the US or Russia, but like really... And I feel like maybe it's not only about the fear of a changing world or anxiety. Maybe it's not so much about or not only about this need to escape from modernity and all of its baggage. But perhaps it's also a desire to build something that is different. Like, you know, the people do not agree People don't want to be part of it and they want to build 
a different world or um at, at least not for everyone but for their small community uh for their region or whatever so but 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 it's really hard to but it's really hard to kind of think about it in those terms because these people are conservative so we kind of as people who subscribe I, I guess you and I subscribe to progressive secularism. Um, it's really hard, hard for us to kind of give them the right, that they do have the right to disagree and pursue that because it seems so wrong in a way, or if not wrong, but like... Yeah, I mean, I I was thinking I was thinking it probably really communicates to you and the people that you're studying because it's a kind of similar thing, right? Where people are looking for, and I think this is the thing, right? And I see this across, say, to speak of political spectrum, because I've seen people gravitate to say leftist politics in an almost religious way, and as a way to immerse themselves into a very tight knit community for a variety of reasons. And I think this is a similar, this speaks to, you know, like what you're studying, it speaks to certainly what Sarah's talked about, it speaks to things I've experienced just anecdotally, that um, it doesn't really, if you strip out all of the politics, let's say, and, and this need for some sort of community of sorts, I think is what's really telling. It's really important, because in our neoliberal age, those communities have been destroyed <laughs> in many respects. Absolutely. And uh, it definitely speaks to my research and it definitely speaks to the fact that, I mean, people have the right to disagree and do something differently. And it doesn't mean that, you know, <laughs> they're necessarily wrong, even though we want to castigate them as being wrong. And, you know, while listening to the interview, it also made me think that it must have been so hard for Sarah to do this kind of research because of the differences in political commitments that she and her and the community that she worked with have. Well, Rusana, thank you very much for, for your, your comments. Um, there are, it's always interesting to, to hear what, what you and, and Margaret think of these interviews. And as always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova. And as you know, this SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast, please help us spread the word, share it on your various social media platforms. A big help would be if you write a review on iTunes or any of the other plat whatever platform you listen to the podcast from. You know, drop us a line on, on social media if you have some comments or questions. I'll do my best to try to get to them. Uh, sometimes things fall through the cracks. Or you can send us a message through srbpodcast.org and let us know what you think. And if you'd like to support this podcast, we, of course, will welcome it. Um, this is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and it relies on the support of individuals like yourselves and other institutions to keep it completely free to listeners, free from paid advertisements. So please help us keep it that way. So go to uh, the srbpodcast.org and click on that SRB table of ranks and become a monthly patron. So until next time, bye.